it's difficult for me as we look at the book of Ezra in chapter 5 to figure out where to start, right? And how to use the, the next uh, uh, 25, 30 minutes most beneficially with all of this content. And so as I've looked through it and so on, um, there were a couple things that stood out to me as something that really did uh, affect my life this week, right? This is how the word worked in me. Now remember, as a summary, the year in this book is 520 BC, so 520 years before Christ. We know that from chapter 4, verse 24, where it says, Thus, Then the work on the house of God that, that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius. Well, we know from history that that date is 520 B.C. And the building of the house of God had stopped over the past 16 years. And the people have been focused on their own houses, their own stability. This is what we learned over the last couple weeks from Haggai's book and from Zechariah. And so, verse 2, Zerubbabel begins to work. Jeshua begins to work because of the ministry of these prophets. And it says they began to rebuild the house of God and the prophets were there supporting them. Then what happens in this story is the adversaries, these different adversaries now come out and they want to stop the building. Who told you you could do this? What are your names? Right, They're coming in because they want to dogmatically kind of stop and bring an end to this. And then in verse 6 and following have the content of the letter that they sent, which reminds us of chapter 3, I think, where they did that before. <clears throat> Oh, no, it was in chapter 4 they did it before. So this is another letter <clears throat> to Darius. And in the, the letter, there's this communication that goes on. And the thing that stood out to me all the way through this chapter is the same message that God has uh, really emphasized to me, and I've been emphasizing it to you, and I, it probably becomes old hat. It probably gets a little boring. Steve says the same thing over and over again. And so I, I was concerned about that as I brought this message because I don't want to preach the same message over and over again if I don't have to. But all the way through this passage, the thing that stood out to me as I've talked with people in our community, as I've talked with people in our church, as I've talked with people online, as I've talked with people back in Chattanooga, as I've talked with them about their life and, and what God is doing and, and how we ought to think and how we ought to act, the same thing keeps coming up. What does God say about it? Right? What does God say about it? That's been the question that people ask me. Hey, Steve, I've been really thinking about this. Can you help me understand what God says about this? Or this thing has been going on in my life or I've been wondering about it. Does the Bible help me? Does the Bible give me any direction on how to understand this? And so as I've read this this week, that was on the forefront of my mind. And so... I just think that way. And so this morning, what I'd like for us to do is I'd like to look at this thing, that God has a message. Now, all the way through the Bible, he has this message. And in Ezra, we get to see that it's, it's the same message. This is how God is at work. And this is crucial to see it because at the very beginning, the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, prophesied to the Jews. And we read their book last week. We read the book the last two weeks. We saw that there was a specific message. They had stopped building. And what did God do to get them rebuilding? He sent a message. He sent a message. So the first thing that I want you to look at is that God has a message. He does. He has a message. 
These people needed to be corrected. And the correction came through this speaking. And this is the way God does it. I mean, we're talking about this. I mean, I'm reading from his message. So it's not surprising that his message is all about his message. And even when we open the book to this, uh, to this page where we talk about Ezra and what Ezra says 2,500 years ago, it's not surprising to see that God's message is significant. It's crucial that we discard all other messages. It's crucial that we get rid of all the other messages that fill our hearts and minds and tighten our focus on this one thing. When it came down to it, God sent more messengers. When the people of the Lord needed to be changed or saved or delivered, God sent more messengers. And so he has a message. There's no other way. In this book and in every other book in the Bible, it is God constantly speaking to his creation. And it's interesting for me as I look at this message, it's not God, um, it's not God working for the success of the children of Israel as much as it's God working for the success of his message. Make this known. It's fantastic when we read this passage. And he has a message that he is God and there is no other. He has created all things and he's the one who sustained them. We read this all the way through the book. And so this morning, as we look at this, I've got several descriptions from this passage about what his message is. The first one I'd like you to look at is in verse five. His message is that his eye was on them. As we read this and look at this, this is something that has stood out for us Throughout this book, his eye was on them when they were in Babylon, when they were in bondage, when they had been exiled. God still saw them. God was still looking at them. God knew them. His eye was still on them. Look at verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. What a great message. If there's anything that the book of Ezra has taught us, it is that God is actively engaged in the lives of his people. That's a message that we have to take. This book was recorded so that the children of Israel would see that God works in his people. Even though, even though everything is hopeless and helpless. Even though the temple is destroyed and there is no hope or help from their power, their strength, their riches, their wisdom. God is still watching. Don't we need to hear this? I mean, don't you need to hear this, that God's eye is on them? Jesus says that God knows the sparrows. And aren't we of more value than they? God is watching. His eye is on us. It's a message of encouragement. Maybe this morning you're struggling like these Israelites. Maybe there are people saying things about you that are going to try to ruin your life. Maybe there's people that are trying to interfere with your business or your families. Whatever it is, this morning it's helpful to know that God's eye is on us. That's an encouragement. We had a long list of health prayer requests. One of the things that encourages me from Marilyn's testimony from the day I met her was, I don't know what's happening to my body but I know God is watching. 
What an encouragement for you and I as our life wears out, as our body fails us. What a hope it is to know that God's eye is on us. And it's also a message of correction. God is watching ought to frighten any sane individual, right? When, when we read this, we ought to not only be encouraged, but we ought to be challenged like Rochelle challenged us on Wednesday night when she talked to us about uh, the warning in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. That ought to cause us to pause. When we read that God's eye was on the elders, it ought to serve as a corrective. There's nothing hidden from his sight. There's no escape from his awareness. The things done in darkness will be revealed by his light. As a matter of fact, I think it's the Psalms that tell us that darkness is as light to him. What a challenge for the people of Israel or Ezra. You've been living for yourself. You've been doing your own thing and you haven't realized that God is watching. But God is watching. It's a message that his eye is on them. Something that really helped me this week is I think about my precious daughter, Emily. She's carrying that baby and she's getting more and more nervous. Moms, you can understand this. I can't. I'm standing on the outside. But my goodness, I can't be there to help her. And even if I was there, what help would I be, right? I mean, I was hardly any help for her mom when she was giving birth to her. So how much help would I be? It's just like this this reality. But listen to what it says. The eye of their God. The eye of their God. Think of the personal intimacy Think of the personal intimacy of that. He is watching us. His eye is on us. It's not some general description. God was paying close attention to them. I don't know what's going on in your life this morning, but God's attention isn't some kind of random accidental thing. This message that his eye is on them is one of personal intimacy. He really was watching them. His eye is on us. He sees us. I was thinking about this earlier when I was talking to somebody uh, Monday or Tuesday about uh, the story of when David was anointed as king and Samuel brings David's brothers before him and he looks and he sees a kingly person. He sees a kingly person. He sees a kingly person, strong, robust, manly. And God says, nope, not him. Nope, not him. Nope, not him. And Samuel's like, what's going on? Is there any more? And well, I got this little boy. And brings the boy and Samuel's like, no way. He doesn't look like a king. And what does God say? He says, you see on the outside, but I see inside. Personal, intimate, God doesn't just look on the outside. When God sees us, he sees us. When his eye is on us, it is on us. That's a great help. That's a great help. On your, on your list there, his message is that his eye is on them. The second one about that is his message is that he is the great God. 
when we read this passage, it reveals to us the testimony of the adversaries about this great God. Somehow or other, these adversaries had gotten this message that their God is great. Whether it was because this is what the adversaries think because they've seen this God work or because this is what they heard of God, it's really important as we read this to see that this is a secular pagan testimony. It's important to see that God's message is being spread or has been spread in this way. This God is great. And it's repeated over and over and over and over again in the Bible. This is a great God. Look at verse 8. Be it known to the king that we, that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. What a great description. I know it's simple. We sang a song about it today. I know we sing songs about that all the time. And sometimes it just becomes sort of rote, accidental. But the reason it's repeated over and over again is because we often forget that our God is great. We neglect this message. But our God is great. We neglect it when we worry. We neglect it when we get anxious. We neglect it when we get prideful and vain. We neglect it when we get distracted. But this is the message. This God is great. This message really serves to give perspective to the letter because he goes on to say, this God is so great that his house requires huge stones. Right? This is how they describe it. It's with huge stones. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. And then he goes on to say, this God is so great that the people who serve him work diligently to be obedient to him regardless of the perception that their earthly um, rulers might be displeased. Think about that. Because now they're building after they have been told to stop building, but they think God is so great that they would rather face the wrath of the earthly king than of their great God. That's a perspective that's important. His message is that he is great. He is great. His message is also that he is the God of heaven and earth. That's the next part in your outline. His message is that he is the God of heaven and earth. Verse 11 and verse 12, it describes him as he is the God of, of heaven. And what stood out to me is in verse 11, look at it, it says, and this was their reply. They asked the questions. The adversaries asked the questions. And the reply of the people was this. Oh, church, for me, this was encouraging. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. That's who we are. That's the message. This reminds me so much of the book of Acts, where people are asking the church what they believed, why they acted the way they did, etc. And those Christians replied meekly. They replied gently, but they replied forcefully. We are servants of the Most High God. That's a message. These Israelites are getting the message. These Israelites are realizing that they must put their lives in proper perspective for the watching world. They were asked a question and their answer was this. We are servants of the Most High God. Not we need better uh, social activities you know, not we need the government to provide us with more of these things because talking to the governor, not more that we need social benefits or whatever. They said, no, we're servants of the most high God. 
They're picking it up. Consider what we can learn about the Israelites from this message. You and I, what can we learn? Verse 12, they understood that their fathers had sinned and angered God. They had a bright perspective, right? They understood that God is the heaven, uh, that he is the God of heaven and earth, but that they are not. They are fallen. They understood that this was the reason for their exile and their bondage. The reason they were there was because they couldn't do it on their own. And this is crucial to the message. This is crucial to this story. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Humanity, even the Israelites, God's people can't save themselves. God must make a way for them. They are helpless. If there's one thing that this is a story of, it fits right within the story that God must awake, make a way. Humanity can never bridge this gap. It is too vast and we are too weak. God must make a way. And they bear testimony to that. I love the way they say that. We are servants of God, of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. They could have so much political pride here, so much, in, so much zeal they could have. But look what it says. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Oh, wow. They're not preaching themselves. They're preaching Christ. They're lifting up this God. Oh, And you and I, as we look in this story, it's important that we see that in this passage, God is moving towards his greatest revelation of all. They're starting to, to really put the pieces together. God called a people. God blessed those people. Those people rebelled against him. That he removed them and punished them. But now he's making a way for them to come back into his relationship. Wow. Two more. His message is that there is a proper way to serve him. And we already talked about this, but I just wanted to point it out this morning. God's message is that there's a proper way to serve him. And where did I get that from? Simple. I, I preached on this earlier when we saw that the, the vessels were returned, but Ezra mentions them again. And so I, I want to bring them into our attention. Verse 14, And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to, to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. And so in this letter from these adversaries to Darius, we see that God's message is still being carried out. And we remember what the significance of these vessels are. And so would the governor. These governors who are writing it to Darius would recognize that these are ritualistic ceremonial vessels having to do with something or other of the God's worship. They were being used for serving God. So anytime they talked about these kind of things, they would be talking about serving God in a proper way. And we see this, it's important. Each of these messages, each of these vessels are part of God's message. Each of them tell us something about the God that we serve. And the last thing that I'd like for us to look at that really, I mean, his message is that he has a house. This stood out to me 
Because in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 verses out of 17, God's house is referred to. That's, that's pretty significant. I mean, it's really significant. This whole book, or this whole chapter right here, overwhelmingly God's house is described. In verse 2, it says, they began to rebuild the house of the Lord. Verse 3, at the same time, um, they came to him and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house? They also asked them, what are the names of the men who are building this building? Throughout, all the way through this, it's talking about building the house of the Lord, the house of God. Verse 7, or verse 8, to the house of the great God, it is being built. It's important that we see this. In verse 9, who gave you a decree to build this house and to build this structure? Verse 11, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house. Who destroyed the house, verse 12. Verse 13, that this house of God should be built. Man, what does that have to do with you and I? How is this message something that is helpful for us? But this is, this is a, a great picture of the gospel in the Old Testament. This house is a model or it's an example. It's a type. It's a story and picture of who God is. This is something that is physical. It's concrete. It's tangible to point to the existence and presence of God. This isn't an idea of God. They're building the house of God. And when they talk about building it, they're talking about physically doing something real and tangible. What does that tell us about God? It tells us something pretty significant about God. That he is real. That he is a presence. God has given us this picture this house took labor. It was work. It took materials. In verse 8 it said it is being built with huge stones and timber. This is God's house. There's a message in this. It's personal. It says it's the house of God. It's his house. In verse 15 it calls it a temple. And everybody in the culture would understand what happened in a temple. It wasn't just any house. It was God's house of worship. It was the house of God's presence. This house is an ancient house. The great kings from hundreds of years before had, had begun the work of this house. This isn't not just a, a momentary thing, but this is a house that has presence in their history. It's an interesting international place. Here we are in one nation, Israel, writing to another nation, Persia, to check the archives of another nation, Babylon, to find a record of this house. It's not just a little place in Israel. But it has an international flavor, which is important to the gospel. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege. God's house was his gracious and merciful gift to them. His house wasn't for himself. He doesn't need a house built by human hands. The earth is his and the fullness thereof. But God's house is a precious privilege for the people that he would come to be with them, that he would place his presence among them. And their sin was the reason behind this house. 
Their sin was the reason. He didn't have to forgive. But this house was the resource that God had provided for their deliverance. Sacrifice happened at his house. Worship happened at his house. Forgiveness and pardon happened at his house. What a privilege. What a grace. This house is a privilege and it was their sin that caused it to be removed. It wasn't a right. That's what stands out to me so much. It says, but because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house. It's important for you and I to remember that this house is a privilege. It's not a right. That's what makes grace, grace. However, this story is about how he is still making a way for them to be saved. We have sacrifice in the story of this house. We also have resurrection in this house. Don't we? Chapter 12, or verse 12, the house was destroyed. And in verse 13, we see the glory of the gospel. However, however, the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. God had given them himself in the temple, the tabernacle, and then the temple, all that went with it. And then because of their sin, the house was destroyed. It was wiped away. But then God caused it to return so that they would still have his presence. What a picture for you. All of this, this whole chapter, every part of it points to a greater message than the, than the children of Israel in this chapter could ever imagine. God with man. God's eyes upon the lives of man. God dwelling with man. I don't know, does anybody in here know how many, how many more days until Christmas? Jake, or Isaac, do you know? I mean, not Isaac, Creed, Blessing, do you know? Typically they'll be like, oh, we have, you know, 356 days until Christmas, right? We have 350 days until Christmas. We have 349 days till Christmas. You know, we're close. We're what, six weeks away from Christmas? Think about the message of Christmas. You shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us. As Jesus becomes the temple to deliver us from our sins. I've got a couple of takeaways that sort of worked in my heart as I was, I was thinking about this this week. One of them is that we need to think about this chapter as a small part of the big picture. I've mentioned this before, but I want to continue to encourage us to recognize that we are also involved in this small picture. You and I are part of a small picture. Or we're a small part of the big picture. You and I are. The truth that we see in here is also the truth of the gospel for you and I. It is. Right? His message for us is that he has his eye on us. That's the message for you and I. Right? The message for you and I is that he is a great God. That's still our message. That he is the God of heaven and earth. That's still our message. The message for us is still that there's a proper way to serve him. And the message for us is that he has a house. That he is with us. Think about this. Think about the Christmas story. It didn't just start with the angel's message on Christmas Eve in a field with shepherds. That's not where the message started. It didn't start with a, a, um, an angel's message in the home of a young virgin named Mary. 
It didn't start with the words of a prophet in Hosea or Jonah or Haggai or any one of the other prophets. It didn't start with the words of a king like David or Solomon. The message didn't start with the word of a deliverer like Moses. And it didn't start with with the word of a dreamer like Joseph. It started with the word in the beginning. God said. And you and I are a part of this message. At the end of this service, we will read the Great Commission together. And we will be placed in our part of this same message. This is for you and I. This message has been proclaimed from the very beginning in many ways and at many times. But in these last days, Jesus Christ proclaimed it. The one that the the people in Ezra were looking forward to. the, the, The final perfect temple of the Son of God. Ezra is just a small part of this message. But this message is made up of so many little parts. And you and I are one of those parts. As I was thinking about Jesus Christ, I was was thinking about this temple, the first temple, the tabernacle, all of the rituals, all the costumes, all the vessels, all the altars, all the liturgies pointing directly to Jesus Christ. This message is for you and I, and we have the source of it in a way that Ezra and, and Nehemiah and Isaiah didn't have. You and I have Jesus Christ. They were working to build an earthly temple, an earthly house, but you and I have that house. And in a great way, you and I are that house because of Jesus Christ. What a great truth. He is God with us. He is the dwelling place of God with man. What is the gospel? In this, for you and I to take away, humans spend their lives like the Israelites, focused on themselves and ignoring the God of heaven and earth. You and I do that. You and I do that. What's the takeaway? Oh, we need the prophets. We need the message of God to call us back on a daily basis. We need God to call us back daily. We are now being built up as his temple on earth. The precious glory of this book points to the truth that God isn't making a temple out of stones We're the stones. One of the things that I want to take away from this message is the intense work that goes into that, the diligence, but God's sovereignty, his eyes on us, making us into a temple. Wow. This morning, this morning, let's focus on the great God. Let's focus on knowing the message of this God. Let's focus on sharing the message of this God, making it known like they were making it known in a global sense. Let's remember that God's eye is on us. And let's remember the reality that we don't need that old temple. You and I have God with us in Christ Jesus for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, work in our soul today. Help our hearts and our minds to know your message and give you glory. For Christ's sake today, amen.